Then at 2.30, I'm going to be in the office of Senator John Boozman. Boozman, Boozman, how do we say it? Boozman. But my personal favorite is that at 3.30, I'm then going to be seated in the office of Senator Tom Cotton. So I'm very excited to have a privileged opportunity that I have several weeks and months ago, I sat with our board and I shared with our board of something I asked the church to send me to. It's a special, what's called Watchmen on the Wall Conference that's being presented by the Family Research Council. And it's in response to um, religious tyranny that we seem to be seeing kind of arise in our United States. Now, certainly that was punctuated by the most recent thing that happened to come down from the Justice Department this past week in response to, you know, transgender uh, self-identification of your body anatomy and your, you know, whether you're a male or a female in the public school, in the public sector. Now, I'm not necessarily here to speak about those things today, but certainly it kind of shows the reason why pastors need to be informed, educated, got a list of speakers. It's very, very stringent schedule that while we're there, um, not, just wanted you know, so I sat down with the board and I said, guys, I'd like to have this opportunity to go because I think this is the time that pastors cannot remain silent. Pastors have to do their part. We have to help funnel, funnel information to you so that you as a fellowship, that you are doing your part. Um, so again, I get a privileged tour of the U.S. Capitol that night after I have the, um, the lobbying Congress, those, what that means when I'm in their office, I'll be lobbying our congressmen and senators. And then I'll be in two days of sessions, and it sounds like a little vacation. The vacation will come later, but it starts at 5 a.m. Do not tell Sister Sherry, because she does get to go, but she does not know that there's prayer meetings at 5 and at 6 a.m. Um, in anticipation, many, many speakers, including some that are our own congressmen, uh, in the uh, United States, congressmen will be speaking, but also ministers, including the daughter of Billy Graham, Ann Graham Lutz, is that still her name, L-U-T-Z, and uh, who's a very prolific speaker and author. Matter of fact, Billy Graham himself said that the greatest preacher in his family was his daughter. And so I'll get to be in session with her. So I'm looking forward to all these things. But let me just tell you, I'm there as a representative of First Assembly of God. I'm there to add my voice in an agreement to awareness, to be studious, to, be, to, to learn, to be a part of the solution and not a part of the problem. To gather and glean and then to bring back some information that I can help share with you as a family and as a church family. So with that in mind, I'm going to let you know what I'm going to be preaching about today. I'm going to be preaching about the election today. The election. So I'm going to ask you to stand with me as you turn to 2 Peter chapter number 1. The election. The third verse here in the first chapter of the second epistle. Janice, I'm going to toss you that. Pink doesn't look as good on me today when I'm in my plain colors like this. Thank you. You can have that, by the way, if you want to give that to someone. According, third verse, as. Y'all read this with me, okay? You'll read this in your heart and mind. You can read it out loud. According as his divine power hath given unto us all things that pertain unto life and godliness through the knowledge of him that hath called us to glory and virtue. Thank God for the knowledge of Jesus whereby are given unto us, this is you and I, exceeding great and precious promises. Now, I know that it is a debatable doctrine as to whether or not the promises of the old covenant that we often lay claim to are applicable to the New Testament believer. Here, the apostle Peter affirms to us that God has given us exceeding great and precious promises. That by these you might be partakers of the divine nature. I mean, no, God's done something divine inside of you. And when he translated you out of the kingdom of darkness into the kingdom of his dear son, you have now escaped 
the corruption that is in the world through lust. And besides this, so now the apostle said, let me share with you some things that should be found in the life of an individual who has escaped the corruption that is in the world, that you have received of that exceeding great and precious promises and the divine nature of God. In your life, he said, giving all diligence, make sure. I, I like that passage of scripture that talks about examine yourself, 2 Corinthians 13. Examine yourself as to whether or not you are in the faith. Look diligently. We're going to read an accompaniment or a compliment, uh, a complimenting uh, scripture here in a moment. And besides this, giving all diligence, add to your faith. You have faith, but do you have virtue? Wow, that's good right there. You have faith, but do you have virtue? And then from virtue, knowledge. And then from knowledge, temperance, which simply means self-control. And certainly knowledge would be the knowledge of God, the knowledge of his word. So do you see the accumulation of these divine attributes in your heart and life as you are giving diligence to your faith and who you are. You are, discern, you, are, you are discerning what God is doing in your life. You're looking. We've talked about maturation. You're looking for maturation in your life that not only do I have faith, but I have virtue. Not only do I have virtue, but I have knowledge. And this is not of myself. God produces this in us. Come on. And to knowledge, temperance, self-control, and to self-control, patience, and to patience, godliness, and to godliness, brotherly kindness, and to brotherly kindness, charity or love. For if these things be in you and abound, they make you that you shall neither be barren nor unfruitful in the knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ. Isn't that powerful right there? You're neither barren and nor are you unfruitful if those things are present but if they are not present then let's go back to that examine ourselves whether we're really in the faith for just a moment but he that lacketh these things here he said he is blind he cannot see afar off and hath forgotten that he was purged from his old sins so wherefore the rather Brethren, speaking to us as believers, look at this. And this is our tipping point. This is our uh, moment where we discern where we're going, what God, I believe, has laid on my heart to speak to you. Wherefore, the rather, brethren, give diligence. There's the word diligence again. To make your calling and election sure. For if you do these things... You shall never fall. And I know perhaps you thought that I was going to talk about November and the election between. We don't have time for that today. Maybe later. There's a far higher election that I want to talk about than to be the president of the United States. There is an election in God. A calling that we have heard and responded to. That we needed an awareness of what that calling led us to. I have an accompanying scripture verse, one verse, very familiar to many of you, but let's read this as it's the latter portion that we often overlook because of the emphasis of the first part of the passage, Revelation 17 and 14. It says here, these shall make war with the Lamb. And the Lamb shall overcome them. Hallelujah. Isn't that powerful? He will overcome because he has already overcame. For he is what? Lord of lords and he is king of kings. And they that are with him. How many of you say, that's me. Today I'm with him. Whatever side I won't be found on, I won't be found on God's side. And so here he said, and they that are with him are called and chosen and faithful. Now, we're going to talk today about the election. But again, we're not talking about a presidential election. We're talking about an election of an eternal signification that God has given to all of us. And we're going to discover to a degree, 
a measure of that merit and that virtue that he's worked in our lives by reason of that calling. So let's pray. Father in heaven, I love you and I humble myself even now before this church family, feeling, Father, that I need the total help of the Holy Spirit to be able to share the content of what we're going to discuss today, feeling very limited, inadequate in my own education, but trusting the Lord today to reveal good things to us. In Jesus' name, and everyone said, amen. Amen. Now, very, very quickly, before I share with you and take you into the angle of which I'm going to speak, it's going to surprise you. You haven't seen, I haven't taken the ribbon off of the container as of yet. It's very, um, what's the right word here today? It's, 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 it's a day today where we're, I'm going to trust we're focused. I'm going to trust that we're willing to listen and learn. Our attention is that we didn't, you didn't come in here with great uh, exuberance today, but that doesn't mean that you didn't come here without focus. That you're focused, you've got something, you're, you're expecting something. I want to draw from this word election very quickly in 2 Peter, that the apostle Peter chose to use. And it's not the only time that he chose to use this particular word. He used it elect previously in um, the, uh, an earlier chapter of the first epistle. But he's not the only one that would use this word. It was also used by Jesus himself. It was also used quite often by the apostle Paul. We find the word elect uh, given 13 times in the New Testament. We find the word election six times, and we also find the word chosen 24 times. Now, that's all from either the same exact Greek word or the root of the Greek word. So, in essence, it's the same thing. So, you have to be aware when you're reading the scriptures. Now, there are multiple words that are translated chosen, but so you have to allow the context or the Greek dictionary to define it for you so that you can know the right application. But let me share with you what this particular word would actually mean in its actual context. Or but in the spiritual world as well. The decree made from choice by which he determined to bless certain persons through Christ by grace alone. A thing or a person chosen of persons. God's elect. So listen, very good. A thing or person chosen of persons. So in essence, to understand the context very quickly and the content through the definition is there are many called, but few chosen. But you and I that have heard the call and responded have become the chosen of the Lord. So therefore, we are the elect of God. And we have this election that the Apostle Peter is exhorting us that we are to, in this context, to make this calling and election sure. So very quickly, Strong's defined this word as divine selection. Again, defining it or also translating it chosen and election. I think that once you have some measure of revelation concerning the truth that God chose you, that you perhaps in one degree chose God, but the greater side was that God chose us in Christ. It can change everything about who you are. You're talking about the search for significance. You will find your significance in Christ. You will find who you were created to be. You will discover that God chose you out of darkness and placed you in his son, put you into the kingdom of his dear son. And he has awarded you with the merits of faith and grace and goodness and kindness and the work of his Holy Spirit in your life. Not only are you blessed in this life because you are chosen by God, but you will be blessed in the world to come. Come on, somebody. That's good right there. You are the elect of God. God has elected, chosen you. But I want to go a little bit today. It was several months ago that I was invited to participate in an online discussion with our own Dr. Phil Brassfield. Once I looked at the content of the discussion, I gracefully 
tiptoed out of that discussion and never even logged in because I knew that that was water too deep for me to swim in. However, since that time, I have been intrigued a little bit. And in our conversations, I believe this was in a response to Dr. Brassfield's doctorate degree. Some of the studies that he was going through was causing him to look at particular doctrines that have been a part of the church in days gone by that have oftentimes resulted in division. And I'm going to allude to that today. And so as we look at this context of the election, we're going to look at it in the context of Calvinism versus Arminianism. And in doing so, we're going to hopefully help you discover the place or the the truth of God's election in your life so that you live your life in the quiet confidence that God chose you. Come on, somebody. Amen. Let me give you a little bit of background. Many of you don't know. You know it just as I did very much just on the light surface level. But one of the most controversial and divisive doctrinal debates in the history of the church followed the Reformation. It began prior, long prior to the Reformation. It began before the Dark Ages. It began with Augustine of Hippo in his dialogue and his discussion. But when the church was drawn into the Dark Ages because of the Roman papacy limiting and controlling access to the divine scriptures, then men did not have the revelation that would come following the Reformation. But following the Reformation, when man suddenly is allowed access to the Word of God and began to study for his own and read doctrines begin to arise and oftentimes these doctrine and these places of doctrinal belief collide in opposing viewpoints and thus is this particular doctrine calvinism is based upon the theological beliefs and the teaching of john calvin who lived from 1509 to 1564 he was a leader in the reformation and he was Uh, He was one that taught these principles that we're going to highlight very quickly. While Jacob Arminius, Jacob Arminius lived from 1560 to 1609. And after studying under John Calvin's son-in-law in Geneva, he started out as a strict Calvinist and later as a pastor in Amsterdam and a professor at a university that he began to study differently and he studied the book of Romans differently and it led to doubts and a rejection of many of the Calvinistic doctrines. In summary, listen very quickly before we kind of break this open just a little bit in this context because these are questions you did not know that when you thought these thoughts that you were a part of a much larger debate that has, again, divided the church. Even to this very day, churches, entire denominations are divided over the doctrinal beliefs of Calvinism and Arminianism. And I'll give you a, few, a little bit of reference point to that in a few moments. But to summarize very quickly, Calvinism centers on the supreme sovereignty of God. Here's something that I know every one of you have thought about, but you've not necessarily been able to resolve it. Predestination. You've you've thought about that in your mind. You've asked and wondered, is this person predestined for that or predestined in the context of eternity? It centers on the total depravity of man, unconditional election, limited atonement, irresistible grace, and the perseverance of the saints. While Arminianism emphasizes conditional election based upon God's foreknowledge, man's free will through prevented grace, to cooperate with God in salvation, Christ's universal atonement, his resistible grace and salvation. Notice what it said, resistible grace, to which we'll clarify in a moment, and salvation that can potentially be lost. So we're going to do a comparison in a few moments, but let me take you to the brief history. As this... uh, Calvinism began to be taught amongst the Reformation and Dutch churches formed their particular viewpoints. As Arminianism began to be taught, there were five points of doctrinal belief that those that were a part of this particular camp began to propagate in their pulpits. It led to a moment of a council or a synod, S-Y-N-O-D, where they gathered together and called leaders together. And for um, several months, they debated these issues. 154 meetings took place in the mid to late 1500s. 
And at the culmination of those meetings, they chose to reject Arminianism as heresy and to choose to, and they aligned themselves with five points of Calvinism that we're going to talk about and show a brief comparison in just a few moments. Now, oddly enough, it's hard for us today to fathom this, but the end result, four days after, and again, when they announced that they believed, when those that projected Calvinism to be the right interpretation of Scripture, then the teachings of those that taught Arminianism were separated from their congregations, pastors, and were even forced to leave the country. Four days after the meeting closed, one of the leaders was taken and beheaded to, in, in order to stop or to limit the spreading of this doctrine. That's how great the divide I don't want to go to that type of meeting. If that's the general council of the Assemblies of God, count me out. But with that said, these doctrines, again, later they've never reconciled, but they learned to be peaceable one towards the other. Now, in the Baptist church, many hold to Calvinistic views, but many do not. But it was John Wesley that came along that he put his trust in the Arminian views. And when you think about the doctrinal basis that you've been brought up in in the Assemblies of God, Pentecostalism, our churches evolved or developed from Methodism. Methodism gave birth to the holiness movement and Pentecostalism gave birth to or was, was born out of the holiness movement. Now, there's been some overlap even in Pentecostal churches because especially in the assemblies of God, in the assemblies of God in our early days, a lot of former Baptists came into the assemblies of God churches. So these competing doctrines. So just real quickly, let me talk to you about them just very quickly. I'm going to read a couple of components and just highlight them because I'm going to show you in just one. It's important that you know this. And it's important that you contemplate because you've already thought these questions. You've already thought about this and you've not been able to resolve it but what you did not know or perhaps did not know is that you were a part of a much greater argument the thoughts that you had in your mind have been a part of a much greater argument now there are typically five points of Calvinism that I'm going to mention real quickly and then the counter opposite of Arminianism we might go just a little bit further but in essence Calvinism is often taught under TULIP T-U-L-I-P total depravity unconditional election limited atonement irresistible grace and the perseverance of the saints so let me share with you very quickly and i think it's going to appeal to you spiritually in just a moment it, consider this and this is the first point of calvinism is total inability or total depravity listen to what's taught because of the fall of man man is unable of himself to savingly believe the gospel Calvinism teaches that the sinner is dead, blind, and deaf to the things of God. His heart is deceitful and desperately corrupt. His will is not free. It is in bondage to his evil nature. Therefore, he will not, indeed he cannot, choose good over evil in the spiritual realm total depravity as a result of the fall of Adam. But in like measure, in, uh, the, in the uh, comparable doctrine, Arminianism teaches this, a free will, a free will. Listen, although human nature was seriously affected by the fall, man has not been left in a state of total spiritual helplessness. God graciously enables every sinner to repent and believe. But he does not interfere with man's freedom. Each sinner possesses a free will, and his eternal destiny depends on how he uses it. Man's freedom consists of his ability to choose good over evil in spiritual matters. His will is not enslaved to his sinful nature. So just very quickly concerning, God, again, this free will and God's sovereignty. Calvinism, God's sovereignty is unconditional, unlimited, and absolute. All things are predetermined by the good pleasure of his will. God foreknew because of his own planning. Arminianism, God has limited his control and correspondence with man's freedom and response. And God's decrees are associated with this foreknowledge. And it leads to this depravity in Calvinism because of the fall, man is is totally depraved and dead in his sin. Man is unable to save himself and therefore God must initiate salvation. But Arminianism teaches because of the fall, man has inherited a corrupted, depraved nature. I believe that. 
Man has inherited a corrupt nature through, listen to this, but through prevented grace, prevenient grace, excuse me, God removed the guilt of Adam's sin. This grace is defined as a preparatory work of the Holy Spirit given to all that will enable a person to respond to God's call of salvation. In essence, one cannot even respond to God unless God has previously chosen him. The other, God has allowed his Holy Spirit to prepare the heart so that then you can respond to the call of salvation. Let's go a little bit further. Conditional or unconditional election because you can't understand one point without the other because they overlap each other. Resting upon the previous that man is depraved. God's choice of particular sinners was not based on in on any foreseen response or obedience on their part, such as faith or repentance, etc. On the contrary, God gives faith and repentance to each individual whom he selected. These acts are the result, not the cause of God's choice. Election, therefore, was not determined by or any conditioned upon any virtuous quality or act foreseen in man. Let me just clarify that for you real quickly. The Calvinist doctrine says this, that in the genesis of time before God created man God determined beforehand who would be saved and who would not be saved and so then as the call of salvation goes forward it is again in God's predetermined counsel based upon Calvinistic teachings that only those that God predetermined beforehand would be chosen and so for example let me give you an example in a great uh, auditorium of, of, of a thousand people and let's just say that in that group of a thousand people that on any given day that a, a, a salvation altar call is given and men authentically respond, the Calvinists would say is that God in the Genesis had already determined that on that day those three people would be saved and nobody else in the building would be saved. So Arminianism teaches it a little bit different. Arminianism teaches a conditional election. Listen carefully. God's choice of certain individuals unto salvation before the foundation of the world was based upon his foreseeing that they would respond to his call. So listen, the, the Calvinist teaches the elect. The elect are those that God called by his own sovereign will the people it was irresistible we'll touch a moment about that in a moment of time they had to respond because god had predetermined that they would respond but arminianism teaches different that god will allow men to respond to the work of grace that is being shared it's conditional before the foundation of the world in his foreseeing god foresaw who would respond and then once they responded he would call those the elect oh, I like that he selected only those whom he knew would of themselves freely believe the gospel the election therefore was determined by or conditioned upon what man would do the faith which God foresaw and upon which he based his choice was not given to the sinner by God or it was not created by the regenerating power of the spirit but resulted solely from man's will in essence God gave man a free will when the call goes out man by free will can respond but God in this predetermined counsel God looked down the lens of human history and God saw who would respond and he therefore called those elect so do you see the distinguish the distinguishing point some are saying the Calvinists are saying God determined beforehand who would be saved the other says God saw beforehand who would be saved they both call them elect but it's how you arrive at the point of the election where the point of debate is often found. There's only five, and I'm going to share, and I'm going to culminate in a moment. So don't drop your head in boredom here today. You've been a part of the debate. You just didn't know you were a part of it. And you have thought these same thoughts. You have thought these same thoughts because you've read Romans 9. And you've read the passage of Scripture where the Apostle Paul said concerning Pharaoh, where God said, concerning pharaoh if i want to harden him i'll harden him if i want to have mercy on one i'll have mercy on one and you've taken a step back and you've wondered and you said who are we to argue with god and that's what paul said shall the clay say to the potter why hast thou made me thus 
You've contemplated predestination. You've thought this in your mind. Other men that have given their, whole, their lifetime to study these principles have contemplated it. But it will arrive. I'm gonna, it, we're going to arrive at an exciting destination in just a few short minutes if you'll stay with me. So Calvinist third point teaches limited atonement or particular redemption. Listen to this. Under Calvinistic viewpoints, Christ's redeeming work was intended to save the elect only and actually secured salvation for them. His death was a substitutionary endurance of the penalty of sin in the place of certain specified sinners. So it's called limited atonement. In essence, Calvinists teach Christ did not die for all, but he only died for the elect because God had only chosen to save the elect. Arminian doctrine says it's conditional or it is a limited atonement. Uni- listen, listen very or un- let me, universal redemption. Christ's redeem- redeeming work made it possible for everyone to be saved, but did not actually secure the salvation of anyone. Although Christ died for all men and for every man, only those who believe on him are saved. And now as I'm preaching, you're making decisions about what side you're on or not. Because the argument is now coming to the forefront in your mind. And you're saying, well, this is what I've already settled in my heart. His death enabled God to pardon sinners on the condition that they believe. But it did not actually put away their sin until they receive by faith the grace that puts away their sin. Limited atonement. Number four, very quickly. For the, just for moving very quickly, the Holy Spirit. Where does the Holy Spirit work? Where is this thing called grace? Irresistible grace. The fourth or the fifth tenet of Calvinism teaches irresistible grace or an effectual calling. In addition to this outward general call to salvation, which is made to everyone who hears the gospel, the Holy Spirit extends to the elect a special inward call that inevitably brings them to salvation. The external call, which is made to all without distinction, can be and often is rejected, whereas the internal call, which is made only to the elect, cannot be rejected. It always results in conversion. Listen very carefully to the Calvinist viewpoint. By means of this special call, the Spirit irresistibly draws sinners to Christ. So what the Calvinist is teaching here quickly is, again, is that if you have been chosen by God, you cannot resist. That you cannot resist the grace because God chose you and that you have to respond to this invitation to come to Christ. They are saying that all here, but only the ones that respond were the ones that had been predetermined beforehand to respond. But it's opposed by Arminianism that the Holy Spirit can be resisted. Listen, the Spirit calls outward, calls inwardly all those who are called outwardly by the gospel invitation. He does all that he can to bring every sinner to salvation. But inasmuch as man is free, he can successfully resist the Spirit's call. So Arminianism is teaching that the call goes to all and all can hear the call. But that every man, based upon the fact that he was a free will before God, can reject that call. Let's go a little further. The Spirit cannot regenerate the sinner until he believes. Faith, which is man's contribution, precedes and makes possible the new birth. Thus, man's free will will limit the Spirit in the application of Christ's saving work. There's only one more before I bring it to a culminating point in just a moment. But let me give you an example of this. Calvinists believe, therefore, in the total success of evangelism. Let me give you an example of what I mean by that is. If we were to hold a mass crusade and we were to rent a large auditorium and we were to invite hundreds and thousands of people and let's say that 500 people showed up, a vast opportunity to share the gospel. We know that many of them are unregenerate. We pray and they come from tattered, torn, sinful, carnal lives and lifestyles and everyone hears the gospel. The invitation is given, three people respond. The Calvinists would then consider the entire crusade a success because they would say God predetermined that three would be saved. The Armenian, on the other hand, 
would give the same invitation and three would be saved. And then he would go home and he would be grieved in his heart because he would know that there was an auditorium full of sinful men who rejected the wooing and the compelling work of the Holy Spirit, that they chose to resist the grace of God, to resist the work of the Holy Spirit. Now, it's my personal belief that that happens all across the world every day because I believe God is compassionate and gracious and he is always inviting, even so, even so, Jesus himself said, he said, come to the water and drink freely. Come, come, even so. So believe that that invitation, but you can see the distinction. Lastly, very quickly, to complete the tulip, total depravity, unconditional election, limited atonement, irresistible grace is the perseverance of the saints. This one's the one that's going to surprise you because I know you've thought about this one, but what you were thinking about you didn't know was attached to a much larger argument. It's called the perseverance of the saints. It's defined in our generation as eternal security. I know every one of you have had that debate, that debate either in your mind or with another believer, and you have contemplated this doctrine. So listen, what you don't understand when someone says, I believe in eternal security, what they may not understand is they are saying or affirming, I believe in the fifth point of Calvinism, the result of God's election. Calvinism teaches if God's the one that called the person, if God's the one that chose the person, and it's will was irresistible in their life and then they are regenerate by the Holy Spirit then there is absolutely no way they could ever be eternally lost again so the fifth point is known as the perseverance of the saints all who are chosen by God redeemed by Christ and given faith by the Spirit are eternally saved they are kept in faith by the power of Almighty God and thus persevere to the end. And thus the argument is, but what about if their life is carnal after their conversion? The Calvinists will respond one of two ways, one of which is either than they were not genuinely converted, number one, or number two, their works will be burned up when they go to heaven. Arminianism teaches this, of falling from grace. Those who believe and are truly saved can lose their salvation by failing to keep up their faith or failing to believe. All Arminians have not agreed on this point. This is true. Some have held that believers are eternally secure in Christ, that once a sinner is regenerate, he can never be lost. John Wesley did not teach that doctrine. John Wesley taught that it was possible for a person to having had received regeneration by the Holy Spirit, that if by sin, by his own imagination, his heart that was previously illuminated to the grace of God could once again grow hard and he could in turn reject that grace that had previously saved him. Now, many of us have held differing viewpoints concerning these doctrinal beliefs. And I'm not here to bring you to a particular conclusion. I just wanted you to see for just a few moments that this particular passage where the Apostle Peter used concerning election has been used a part of a much, much greater argument, an argument that's divided the church for many years. But in my contemplations, here's where I'm going to bring some summary points to close today from my particular viewpoint as what I have self-described myself as, a hillbilly theologian. I've determined that one day I perhaps will write three books. The first one is they call me preacher. Number two is they call me pastor. And the third one is viewpoints from the hillbilly theologian. Very quickly, let me summarize to you what my belief is concerning this election. I don't know whether or not it was God's sovereign will or my free will that led me to believe in the atoning blood of Jesus Christ on the cross. All I know is I was in the third grade and I was eight years old and I put my saving faith in Christ Jesus and he became my Lord and my Savior and I was eternally saved born again regenerate by the Holy Ghost of God 
I've tasted of the good things of God. I've learned of his love and his grace and his virtue. And I want to add to my faith virtue. And I want to add to virtue knowledge. And I want to add to knowledge temperance. And I want to add to temperance. Come on, somebody. Patience. And I want to add to patience kindness. And I want to add to kindness love. Because I want to make my calling and election sure. I want to know and walk in the revelation that I am the elect of God. I don't know whether it was him or me or somehow we worked together to accomplish it, but I am so thankful today that God loved me, called me, saved me, redeemed me, and I get up in the morning and I know I am the chosen, <laughs> hallelujah, of the Lord. So in essence, I won the election. Hillary is not going to win the election. Trump not going to win the election. We won the election. Hallelujah. We won the election because God called us and he chose us. He saved us and he redeemed us. And when you understand in your life that you are the elect of God, you will live your life differently. You'll come out of darkness. You'll come out of all this carnality and wickedness. I will say this. I do side a little bit with those that hold to the Calvinist doctrine that are grieved over what they're seeing, not only in our generation, but in previous generations in the context of salvation. Let me give you a statement from author A.W. Pink. And the reason why I say author, he's written several doctrinal books two of which I know are in our library here at First Assembly of God in the early 1930s. He was a Baptist minister. I've read two of his books myself. He's a very articulate writer, uh, deep in knowledge. And he wrote a statement that just in the middle of this debate that just stood out to me concerning, again, our election and our calling and our salvation that God has given to us. Listen to what he said. He said, the nature of Christ's salvation is, what, this was in 1930, and it was called the sign of the times. My God, what would he think if he could see our culture today? What would he think? He, 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 I don't think he could fathom it. The nature of Christ's salvation, listen, is woefully misrepresented, misrepresented by the present-day evangelist. Listen, he announces a Savior from hell rather than a Savior from sin. Oh, my God, you, that went right over you. Let me go back. I need to read that to you again. You didn't catch that. He said the nature of Christ's salvation is woefully misrepresented by the present-day evangelist because he announces a Savior from hell rather than a Savior from sin. And that is why so many are fatally deceived. For there are multitudes who wish to escape the lake of fire who have no desire to be delivered from their carnality or their worldliness. My God. And I'm telling you, we're seeing that in our generation today. Everybody wants a free ticket to heaven. Everybody wants to escape the eternal lake of fire. But men don't want to come out of darkness. They don't want to come out of their life and their lifestyle of sensuality and immorality and ungodliness. Are y'all hearing what I'm saying? But when you know you are the elect, you know you were chosen to come out of darkness so that you could bear the nature and the fruit and the life of God in your life. And when you have that revelation, you will live your life differently to the glory of God. And so let me say as I close today, if you are a part of the election, if you are a part of the election, then you live like you are the elect. You grow in grace. You grow in godliness. You grow in righteousness. You don't forget what manner of man you are. Are y'all hearing me today? You turn your back on the sins of the past. You're not afraid to mortify your carnal appetites. You're not afraid to address the issues of your life because you want to be pleasing to him. You are called of God. You are the elect of God. And so, therefore, you live your life in the revelation that God called you and chose you to be who you are today, being conformable to his will. Man, that's good right there. I'm going to ask Aaron to join me back on the platform today. The election. Let's read this in closing one more time. Two things, just very, very quickly. It's 12.08. I've been at it for about 38 minutes or so. So that means y'all give me a couple more minutes to bring this to a culmination. 
very, very quickly here today. Let's read this. I know this may not be shouting me down moments, but it's a revelation. I briefly brought you through an argument that had divided the church. And to this day, that division, the width of that divide is just as great as it was. Thankfully, we don't behead leaders of other opposing viewpoints, even within the context of Christianity, as they did in that day. But at the same time, the divide is as great. You and I need to walk in the revelation that we were both called and elected by God. And so, therefore, as Peter is summarizing, he said, Wherefore, rather, brethren, give diligence. Diligence, that's important. These things are important. This is my personal belief. In the rise of many of our contemporary churches that we're seeing in America today, in the rise of many of these churches, the gospel has been so watered down that the, the true portrait of Jesus' death on the cross and his substitution is not being fully recognized. And so in corresponding to A.W. Pink, people are wanting to be saved from hell, but they don't want to be saved from sin. And here's my kind of connection to that. If you're not saved from sin, you're not saved from hell. Are y'all hearing me today? And in the modern contemporary church, because we have the effects of the culture bled over into us, we can't even, not us here, we can, because we do, address the issues of sin the way that they should be. We have to still define sin for what it is. It's transgression of the law. When you sin against God and you have never received that eternal grace of God into your heart and to life to produce regeneration, then you, doesn't matter whether you come to church. Doesn't matter whether you came to the altar. What matters is, did you truly receive of the grace of God in your heart that left you regenerate and changed you immediately? Not just progressively. I believe in progressive change, don't you? I believe in it. But progressive change flows forth from an immediate change. Y'all not shouting me on that. Y'all should have. You missed a moment right there. From an immediate, when I got saved at eight, I got saved. He came into my life. I was born again, born from above, born by the Holy Spirit. The old man died, the new man. I received the breath of God, the pneuma of God, the Holy Spirit. I knew I was saved, right? And I'm telling you, church family, we and the, dis and the generation that we're living in, we need to be a church that rightly divides the Word of God and that holds forth the Word of life because that's the only thing that's going to produce true conversion in the lives of men and women because it's possible to fill the building up and not fill heaven up. This last point that I make in closing, in Revelation 17, look at what it said. Listen what it said. Here's it is, Revelation 17. They that are with him are called. The call goes out. Everybody hears the call. How beautiful are the feet of them that preach good tidings. Because in Romans 10, he said, how shall they hear without a preacher? A preacher gets sent and the word goes out, goes on the airways, it goes uh, in the internet, it goes in local churches, it goes on street corners, it goes in pamphlets and articles. The gospel's going out. Everybody hears the call, but only certain ones respond, chosen. The Calvinists say God determined who would respond. The Arminians say God saw who would respond. And that once he saw who would respond, he would call them his chosen. Many were called, but few were chosen. If you have faith in Christ, then you were chosen by God. You are the elect of God, and yes, you won the election through Christ. You've been placed in a higher place than the office of the President of the United States. 
because you are a son or a daughter of God, you've been made to sit down together in heavenly places in Christ Jesus. I know the next president's going to sit in the Oval Office at the president's desk, but I sit, come on somebody, in an eternal place, uh, uh, joined with my faith with Jesus Christ at the right hand. Are y'all hearing what I'm saying? That place, we sat down together with him in a place of authority. But the writer said, it's not just to be called. It's not just to be chosen. But you got to be faithful. Faithful. Faithful to God. Faithful to that call. Faithful to understand that you were chosen by God. And when you have that revelation, you will live your life differently than you have previously. Our heads are bowed and our eyes closed. We're taking a moment of time here today. Can I ask you to do something before I dismiss you today? Can I ask you to be diligent? Can I ask you to do diligence here today and search? Isn't that what the author said, Peter? Giving all diligence. Are you in the faith? That's what Paul said in like manner, like measure in 2 Corinthians. He said, are you in the faith? Are these things in you? Are you walking in love, virtue, knowledge, growing in the knowledge of God? Or are you blind and you have forgotten that you were once purged from your sins? I tell you, it's time to be real. It's time to be authentic. Can I say that? Maybe you didn't catch that. That word real is used in our contemporary climate a lot. It's time to be authentic in our faith. It's time to be sincere and to really believe and to know who we are in Christ and to know what he's done in us through redemption. So would you take inventory? You know, when I was in the military, I was called an inventory management specialist. And we took inventory. Would you take inventory right now? Would you be diligent? The call's gone out. You've heard the gospel. Jesus died for you. He substituted your life. You, you deserve death. You and I deserve that cross. We had sinned against God. And by virtue of our sin, we deserve to die. But God so loved us that he gave his only begotten son. He hung him on the tree, suspended him between two thieves, and let all the blood that was in his body pass onto that cross and into the dust of that hillside called Golgotha so that a transaction would take place in the heavenlies. It would be his life's blood for our sin debt. He would give his blood to pay the penalty of our sin. And who are we to despise that, to walk away from that, or to live an unholy life in measure comparable to that? Who are we? Would you search your life? Do you need to commit your heart and life to Jesus today? If you're here today and you say, Pastor, I need to commit my life, I will pray with you right where you are today. And I'm going to trust. I don't know whether it's by God's sovereign will or your own free will. I'm just trusting if you're here, today's your day. If you're here today and say, Pastor, I want to commit my heart to Jesus today. I want to not do more than that. I want to give my entire life and receive in my heart and my life all the merits of grace that was given through his blood on the cross. If that's you, raise your hand so I can pray with you today. I don't know who might be here today. I'm going to just trust. I'm going to wait on the Lord today. Number two today, number two, you're here. And you say, Pastor, I have authentic faith. But the reality is I have not been faithful. Come on, don't leave me. Don't you check out right now. I see that hand. Thank you for raising that hand. You say, Pastor, I have authentic faith, but I haven't been faithful. But today, thank you, I see that hand right there. I'm praying with you. I'm going to pray. Thank you, I see that hand right there. Just saying, Pastor, I want to be faithful. I'm the elect of God. I want to be faithful to him. Is there anyone else? I'm going to pray. I'm not going to pull you forward. Thank you, I see that hand right there. The Holy Spirit's moving. Children of God, children of God, you've received it. You're the called, you're the chosen, but you hadn't been faithful. God is saying today is your day to make a commitment, a new commitment to be faithful. I want to ask you to stand up with me today, and we're going to pray a closing prayer.